whereas philosophy is certainly not self-expression. And philosophy, of course, is argument. Uh, and you can say, well, is the conclusion true or is the argument valid? Welcome to Five Questions, where we don't ask if the conclusion's true or the argument valid, but what they say about you. I'm your host, Kieran Setia. In each episode, I ask a philosopher five questions about themselves. There are two ground rules. One is that follow-ups are allowed. The other is that the question I'm about to ask doesn't count as one of the five. So could you introduce yourself, tell us a bit about who you are and what kind of philosophical work you do? Thanks, Kieran. I'm Tim Crane. I'm Professor of Philosophy at the uh, Central European University, which is currently located in in Budapest, but is uh, about to move to Vienna. I work in the philosophy of mind. Mostly I've worked on questions to do with mental representation or intentionality, their relations to consciousness and other mental phenomena. And uh, I've also worked on the mind-body question and on various things in metaphysics. And I've, I've written a short book on religion as well, which is I don't regard so much as philosophy of religion, but as just general speculation about the nature of religion. Well, Tim, it's really great to have you here. I think it's true that you were the first philosopher I ever met in real life. I think back when, I'm not sure if UCL still does this, back when they had in-person interviews for undergraduate admissions, you interviewed me as an as a high school student. And I remember at that point, I had just read Wittgenstein, and I was under the spell, and later Wittgenstein, and was very excited. And I explained to you very confidently that philosophy was a kind of therapy that resolved confusions, but left everything as it is. It did not propound theories of any kind. And you responded by saying, ah, yes, but that doesn't really leave philosophy as it is, does it? And I remember being completely blown away. <laughs> you know, it's never occurred to me. So that was uh, that's my one of my very first memories of interacting with a philosopher was with you. So it, it's wonderful to talk to you again. That's good. That's great to hear. I I, um, I do remember the occasion very well. I don't remember making that point though. And um, thanks for reminding me of that. So my inspiration for the podcast is Iris Murdoch. She begins each episode telling us that philosophy is not self-expression, but she also wrote to do philosophy is to explore one's temperament, and yet at the same time to attempt to discover the truth. So does your temperament influence your philosophy? And if so, how? Oh, I think definitely, um, without question. And in fact, I, I would conjecture that it, it's true of everyone as well. I remember um, Richard Volheim says somewhere, I think it's in that Steve Pike book of pictures of philosophers, that he mm-hmm. He's looking to the camera, holding uh, holding a finger to his face in this very sort of Richard Volheim way. And he said his description of philosophy in the book was philosophy is mostly a form of self knowledge. He says, "Yeah, of course that's an exaggeration, and it's it's an absurd thing to say." And Volheim probably knew that it was absurd, but but there's something in it. I think um, I think about myself. I, I like to think of myself as a kind of irenic person, and and I think that this affects how. I think of philosophy in some ways. I, I really don't enjoy conflict. I know I know many people, many academics who do enjoy conflict, who thrive upon it, but I don't enjoy it. I don't even especially enjoy argument, actually. Philosophy is meant to be about argument, but uh, I don't particularly enjoy that. I, I think David Vellerman said something like this on, on your podcast, actually, but I don't really enjoy arguing with people. I, I can't stand political arguments. I always feel slightly soiled after political arguments. I just really resent having 
got myself into the situation of having to argue with people. So my, I sort of feel in philosophy, my, I try and find common ground, try and identify shared assumptions and shared approaches. And so that's, that was my initial, that's my initial reaction to the question. Uh, but maybe I'm wrong about myself in some ways, because I, I um, and in fact, so following on this kind of psychoanalytic theme, if you uh-huh. like. Um, <laughs> yes. Because what I said suggests that, you know, you you move towards some sort of bland compromise or you say, I, you know, I'm the ironic philosopher. I say, well, you say this is true. The other one says it's not true. Maybe something in the middle is true, you know, something like this. But And some philosophers are like that. But actually, I've ended up in philosophy adopting, if I look back, I sort of adopted some rather non-popular, perhaps even eccentric positions on certain things like my opposition to physicalism in philosophy of mind right. or in metaf- metaphysics generally. I, you know, I've written a book defending the coherence of the idea of a non-existent object, I defended the idea of emergence in some sense and irreducible mental causation, these kind of things. I can see these kind of things wind certain people up. I mean, I just they, people find them annoying. And um, <laughs> so, I, don't, so I, I can't be as ironic as I think I am, I think. I suppose I, I like, many, like many philosophers, I... I quite like being a bit unorthodox and having unusual views. And people often say philosophy is about challenging views or questioning everything. And and I think there's perhaps not enough of that in philosophy. There's a bit bit too much normal science these days. Well, there's a lot to follow up on there. I'm going to start with something about your experience as a philosopher, as someone who doesn't particularly enjoy conflict. Was it hard for you or difficult to enter into philosophy? Was the atmosphere you came into one in which you felt sort of alienated from the combativeness of philosophy? I definitely, I felt the combative nature of philosophy very strongly, when, particularly when I was a graduate student, particularly a, a graduate student in Cambridge in the 80s. It was a very combative environment. I didn't feel alienated from it, but I felt it was very difficult. Um, and I felt it was, it was intimidating. And it was quite a, could be quite unpleasant as well. People could be quite unpleasant to each other. The atmosphere was, you know, that you full of anecdotes of occasions when some brilliant Cambridge philosopher had put some visiting speaker down with a withering comment and this sort of thing. Right. This seemed to be the thing you had to do to um, succeed. A friend of mine said, you know, that in those days, the worst thing that you could do would be to make a mistake. It's so terrible. So you have the people being incredibly cautious. You know, they never, they never want to make a mistake. You know, it's like. Uh, and I, I, that's changed. That's, I mean, it's changed in, in Britain. It's changed in, in the US to some extent as well, in many places. That, that atmosphere of what someone once called combat philosophy. Someone once said to me, in Michigan, they do combat philosophy. Uh-huh. That, I think that's going. That's going to a certain extent. But uh, uh, other kinds of aggressions are starting to take over instead. I wonder if there's a connection between your antagonism to or your, your wariness of the effects of the combative mode and the fear of making mistakes, and your willingness to take up eccentric positions. Because part of what might be going on in taking up those positions is not so much a kind of positive desire to be unorthodox, but just a lack of fear of saying something that might be wrong. That's an interesting question. I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about that like that. I don't really have a desire to be unorthodox, but I found myself drawn towards these positions. And I think it's kind of liberating to not to have to worry too much about making a mistake or putting a foot wrong or saying something that the that the orthodoxy is going to disagree with, um, and I think that has to be an important part of the 
the philosophical venture and philosophical progress that there are people who are prepared not to worry about that. I'm not saying that these steps I've made are enormous steps or anything like that, but just that people ought to have the ambition to think outside the usual assumptions. Very few of the assumptions in philosophy, it seems to me, are the sort of rock-solid things that we have that we have to accept on pain of irrationality or or, or ignorance. So I'm, what I'm interested in in philosophy, in a way, is is um, is what those assumptions are and where they come from. So I think that in order to think about things in a creative or original way, you have to be prepared to challenge some of the dominant assumptions of the area that you're in. And that's what philosophy is about. Not a view that I think everyone holds, but this is why I think the history of philosophy is so important to understanding philosophy, because what we have to understand is not just what's true. Often what's true is easy to understand, easy to grasp, easy to state, you know. Does the world exist independently of our sensing of it? Of course it does. You know, next question. Yeah. It, it's rather what we have to understand is why did anyone ever think otherwise? And that's why we have to understand where our questions come from and what assumptions generate our questions. And I think once you think in that way, then you can develop the confidence to, to see that certain things are not obligatory, that you don't have to think with the herd, you don't have to think with, with all the other people accepting the usual assumptions. Well, I want to ask a second question that's in a way also about temperament and philosophy. This is question two. What trait do you wish you had more of as a philosopher? There are two things I'd really like to have more of. One is a certain kind of precision. I think I'm, I think I'm okay at sketching a big picture sometimes of saying you know, what the overall phenomenology of the mind is or something like this. And, uh, I, but I would like to have more of an ability to to think things through in detail. I mean, I think which is kind of essential to philosophy, really. So I suppose I'm saying I would like to be a more precise thinker. I think analytic philosophy is impressively precise as a discipline, but there's also something which I, I would want to avoid, which is the spurious precision of analytic philosophy. Bernard Williams once said that analytic philosophers had formulated this way of writing, which was meant to make them invulnerable to misunderstanding or objection, even from the malicious or the clinically literal minded uh-huh. so the idea that you formulate your thesis in such a way that you know no one could object to it even if they were malicious or clinically literal minded and th- that absolutely rings true when you read a lot of the pointlessly precise philosophy these days you know with people expressing their views in a in some sort of mixture of symbols from first order logic and a bit of english and some invented symbols put together as if somehow this makes it more precise I'm not really talking about logic here. I mean, real logic, that's something else. But I think the importance of real logic in most of philosophy is hugely overrated. The second thing I'd like to have more of as a philosopher is I'd like to have more knowledge, more learning. I wish I knew more. I'm not sure if this is actually a a trait as such. Um, I mean, one trait I would like to have is I'd like to know more languages. I'd like to be more scholarly as a philosopher. I admire scholars. And I think one often admires the things that one cannot do oneself so well. I'd like to understand, but partly because I'd like to understand the sources of, of philosophical problems. By this, I don't mean necessarily real deep scholarship, which which you know gets lost in the intricacies of, of the of the complexity of the past, but some sort of ability to trace the origins of ideas and see through to where the the assumptions of our problems come from. Also, I don't. Another thing I don't mean by this is. Um, that there's some general, there's one general source of philosophical problems. I don't, I don't think there's such a thing, conceptual confusion or something like this. I think there are many, many sources. So I suppose those are the things. I feel like in some ways I'd like to be more precise and 
the other thing is I'd like to be more um, more scholarly, more learned. I'd like to know more things. I suppose there's still time. Yes, <laughs> let's hope so. Yeah, I'm reminded. I just looked this up actually in response to your comments about precision. There's a the poet, I guess poet and aphorist Jim Richardson once wrote this. He said, "Past a certain point." more precision in argument becomes less, not more scientific, like measuring the diameter of a proton to six significant figures with a yardstick. <laughs> Thinkers, whatever they pretend, count on our mercy. Perfect rigor proves nothing but distrust. And I always liked that. I have a similar feeling as you, I think, about detail and precision. I think I'm not that good at it. Although I have the following excuse, and this maybe will connect to question three. When I try to defend myself to myself for my lack of ability to work out all the rigorous details of a view. Often what I say is, the most I can be confident of is the general outline. If I tried to say with precision exactly which version of this view was exactly the right one, I just wouldn't be confident that at that level of detail, I was getting anything right. And so that's one kind of excuse. So I'm going to sort of leave that hanging, but also transition to question three, and you can take this wherever you want. Question three is, do you really believe your philosophical views? Yeah, this is a great question. And actually, this relates to uh, what you just said, I think. What I want to say about this question relates to what you just said. I think I believe my philosophical views. I, that's, that's, that's my official view. I think I believe my philosophical views. Of course, sometimes it's hard to know what it means to believe a philosophical view if it's not just a matter of you know, saying it with a straight face or something. But yeah. Platonism about mathematics. What does it mean to believe in Platonism about mathematics, except you just insist on it and you come up with arguments for it? And you, so I'm puzzled by that because there are some things that are sort of those things that are further away from the phenomena, if you like. I mean, I really don't know. But I think seriously, it wouldn't really be worth being a philosopher if you didn't believe something. Some, and someone's got to put forward views that they believe, even if others are so tentative and cautious that they never come up with any positive beliefs, but only they, they only come up with objections. It's a bit like there, there was that New Yorker cartoon some years ago of someone standing in the middle of an art gallery surrounded by paintings. And the caption is, he knows all about art, but he doesn't know what he likes. You know? uh -huh. <laughs> Sometimes you see philosophers a bit like this, you know, that they know so much about the literature and the problems, but they, uh, but they don't have any views themselves. So I do have views, yeah. But I think there are two different kinds of views. And this relates to your question. There are these things that you're convinced by if someone you know, if someone said to me, do you think the mind is real? Do, do you think that there is such a thing as consciousness? Do you think consciousness is, how do you think consciousness is related to intentionality? You know, I would, I would strongly express my convictions about, about that. But as you say, when you start probing your view, then it becomes often becomes more difficult to say exactly what it is that this amounts to, because these views are complex things and, uh, and they evolve over time as well. So sometimes the development of your view is a bit is a matter of finding out what you think about something and the boundary there between and this is actually something i think about belief in general that the the boundary between finding out what you think and making up your mind is not a sharp boundary i mean that is to say between finding out what you already think and making up your mind on some new topic and i think philosophy is a very good example of that of trying to figure out what you think it's you're partly constructing something and partly finding out what you already what you already believe i think there's another phenomenon here though which is I think also very worthwhile, and it may not actually count as a belief, but it's when you put out a bold conjecture and see how far you can push it. Maybe this is the grain of truth in Popper's theory of um, scientific progress and, and scientific method, that you, you sort of try and say something and see how it sounds. and You try and 
and then you modify it in response to what people say. And, and there is this feeling that you have, which is that there is something there that you're trying to modify and that you're trying to get right. And I don't think that's a complete illusion. There was this um, poem by Michelangelo where he describes finding the sculpture in the block of marble. It's as if the shape of the sculpture is already there and you're trying to uncover it from you know, by taking the marble away. And I, I feel that philosophy's, I mean, it's a rather grandiose analogy, but philosophy's a bit like that in a way. You feel there's something in there and you're trying to get it right and hone it right. But then often, as you as you say, Kieran, you know, often you, you can find as you try to make it more precise, you actually lose your grip on what it actually is. That's a very interesting phenomenon, I think, under-theorized phenomenon of sort of inchoate not quite inarticulate, but sort of semi-articulate thought, the sense that one is, I suppose it's like the experience of trying to find words for something in, in a way. Yes, yes, I think so. Philosophy often does feel like that, and it isn't something that I think, at least I don't think I understand very well what's going on when we do that. It, I think you're right, it is underexplored as a, as a phenomenon, um, but it's. I think it's very real when you're trying to formulate your thoughts. So let me shift gears at this point and ask you question four which is about philosophy, but more uh, speculative. Question four is, if you could go back in time and meet a past philosopher, who would it be and why? I think philosophers are on the whole quite weird. Uh -huh. and, uh, they're, they're really quite peculiar people, and I'm not sure I'd like to meet a lot of them. Of course, there's the kind of, the, so to speak, the merely anthropological or zoological curiosity you might have with seeing what someone actually looks like. But the actual experience of meeting philosophers can, can be very intimidating. I think back the first time I met David Lewis when I was a graduate student, and he, he was visiting Cambridge where I was a, I was a student, and I, after his talk in the pub, and of course I was completely intimidated by the great David Lewis, and we were standing in the pub, and for a moment I was left alone with him, and, and I had this moment when I had to think of something to say to him because he, he was famously, wasn't someone who did much small talk. Yeah. And I said, I said to him... Um, when did you arrive, Professor Lewis? And he said, I arrived on Tuesday and I leave on Friday. And I thought, well, that's my second question gone. <laughs> when he's leaving. Yeah. And then I, so the, there is that. I mean, I admire David Lewis enormously, but I, and I'm pleased to have had met him. But um, I suppose there's another question, which is about meeting people, is whether you would enjoy meeting them or whether you would sort of relish their company or which ones you might find enjoyable company. And I look back on the philosophers of the past and Leibniz sounds like an interesting person. He sounds like quite something, worldly, sophisticated, well-traveled. Someone, someone said about him, it, you know, it's so rare for intellectuals not to, not to smell and to, take, to be able to understand jokes and things like this. So I, think, I, I love Leibniz's style. I like the, the way he writes and I like the way he develops his thoughts. But So there's someone else. Hume, of course, everyone, but but everyone loves Hume, so that's, that's a commonplace answer. I think about this more generally. I suppose I, I'm I'm really resistant to the idea of heroes. I mean, like you, I had a Wittgenstein phase in in, in my early twenties, and I was completely obsessed with Wittgenstein, and this was beaten out of me when I was a PhD student, and I'm I'm pleased for that. And what it beat out of me too, under my teachers Jeremy Butterfield and Hugh Mellor, they what they beat out of me was any kind of sense that what you do is you sit at the feet of the great philosophers and you try and figure out what they're thinking. You don't have heroes. You don't spend your life trying to value every single thing these people said and trying to look at things from their point of view. You don't say things like, Frege taught us that only in the context of a sentence does a word have any meaning. You, know, you say, 
Frege's view was that only in the context of a sentence does a word have any meaning. What did he mean by this? And, you know, I think this is my feeling about the philosophers of the past, although I think it's history of philosophy is incredibly important. I think hero worship is disastrous for philosophy. I think this relates back to some of the other points and the questions you've been asking, which is um, the extent to which philosophy is a personal endeavour, the extent to which we're trying to find it out for ourselves. And I think another thing that David Bellman said was that he doesn't really mind if people don't agree with him in philosophy. And I realise I don't mind that. When he said that, I realise I don't mind that. I'm not, I'm not interested in persuading people. But there's this personal project that you're trying to get your own sense of things. And I think that's another reason why, for me, the, the idea of the philosopher as a guru, as the hero, as the someone that you're trying to, you're just working, labouring in their shadow, is very inhibit, inhibiting. Well, that might connect with the final question I'm going to ask, or it might not. I'm curious about this. So this is another Iris Murdoch question. She said, uh, or she wrote, it's always a significant question to ask about any philosopher. What is he afraid of? So what are you afraid of? Yeah, to be honest, I've never really understood this this remark of Murdoch's. I'm a little bit of a Murdoch skeptic, I have to say, but... Uh, That's fair enough. But I think I think in this case, I'm I think I might be missing something. But I mean, if I if I'm if I'm going to be literal minded about it, I say, well, you know, I used to be afraid of dogs. You know, I find I find the idea of death by drowning or suffocation. I find that absolutely horrifying. I can't even think about it. I just have to stop myself thinking about it. You know, if I look ahead, I think dementia is a terrible thing, terrible prospect of you know being separated from those you love in that, in that way and being unable to think. I don't think that says much about me as a philosopher, but I think. I don't know if perhaps Iris Murdoch wasn't talking about real fear. She was talking about other things. I mean, I used to fear in some sense, going back to what we were talking about early on as a, my graduate student experience, I used to fear the embarrassment of making a mistake in public, you know, feeling stupid for not understanding something. Or, but once you've done that a few times and you realize it doesn't really matter, then I'm not so bothered about that anymore. And I try and convey that to my, the importance of that to my students as well. But then, I mean, there is one thing I realise that, that related to that, which is the, this sort of lingering fear that you have of being perceived as a fraud or being perceived as a bullshitter, which I think is very important um, in philosophy, that you're, because you're walking this fine line between kind of triviality and bullshit all the time. And I think that fear of being found out, you know, that it might all be based on nothing, is actually quite a powerful thing. I, I, I think I have that. I mean, people talk these days about imposter syndrome. I'm not sure if this is really a good term because sometimes people are just talking about, you know, having very high standards and being very self-critical. And this may, in a difficult subject, this can make your day-to-day life quite hard. That you're criticizing yourself a lot. But again, then I think it's the question. The question is one of balance, really. I suppose. I mean, your proper self-criticism lies somewhere between the paranoid anxiety about your abilities on the one hand, and then you have complacency on the other. So I think over the years, I managed to overcome the first of those. I suppose I do fear being complacent. That would be my fear. Perhaps Murdoch is right there. Maybe she does have a point. But I fear not just being perceived as being complacent, but actually being complacent. That would be my worry. I suppose from the point of view of complacency, it's a good sign that in the course of disagreeing with Murdoch, you managed to self-criticize your own criticism of Murdoch and end up finding some truth in what she said. So that's that's good. That's That's excellent. <laughs> Well, Tim, it's been really wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much for appearing on the podcast. Thanks, Karen. That was Tim Crane. He's professor of philosophy at the Central European University and the author of The Mechanical Mind, The Objects of Thought, 
and the meaning of belief. Thank you for listening to Five Questions. <laughs>